0: What's up, everybody? Chris over here, founder and proprietary trader, prop, whatever, uh, Polonet Trading. Uh, today, I am with Jeff Dorman. He is the co-founder and CIO, chief investment officer of ARCA Invest. ARCA? No, oh, that would be ARC Invest. Sorry. Just ARCA. I'm actually wearing an ARC shirt. Uh, that's funny. Um, he's the, uh, He leads the investment committee uh, responsible for portfolio sizing, a very important tool, of course, trading and risk management. Big fan of sizing, by the way. He's got over 17 years of trading and asset management experience, which he pointed out includes, he personally has a much higher market cap than the first two firms he worked at being Lehman and Merrill Lynch. Uh, went on to, <laughs> went on to uh, uh, oversee trading of $100 million of prop capital at Citadel, uh COO of Harvest Exchange a fintech company widely used by asset managers he's a CFA charter holder has a BA in finance and economics from Washington University in St. Louis and hails originally from uh Cleveland <laughs> and currently in Southern California what's up jeff that's correct what's up chris good to be here my man likewise likewise let's um first of all actually i we we had a little power failure a second ago but let's uh so we had to restart it I was going to say, let's jump right into one of the first questions, but actually wanted to get your uh, hear about ARCA first so that we can like frame instead of just going right into it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So we formed ARCA about three years ago, as you mentioned, we're Los Angeles based, although we have offices in New York. And now in this new remote world, we have offices everywhere. But um, we started Arca three years ago. Uh, we're a full-service asset management firm focused exclusively on digital assets, and that includes two sides of the business. Uh, one of which, where we are actually actively investing in the companies and the digital assets themselves that are driving this new asset class and this new ecosystem. Uh, the other, uh, Arca Labs, where we are using blockchain as an infrastructure or as a wrapper to create traditional boring uh, investment vehicles. Uh, for instance, we uh, launched what's called Arcoin, which is a short duration government bond fund, but the shares trade exclusively as peer-to-peer uh, Ethereum-based digital assets. So we're doing a lot of things around digital assets, both using them and investing them, in them uh, across the entire firm.
0: All right, so ARCcoin, let's jump right onto that then. So an ERC-20, basically I go into my MetaMask and I find ARC, how would I find ARCcoin and how would I get be able to get an investment into that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, right now, you'd have to do it exclusively through our website. Um, It is, uh, uh, we've been working uh, for about two plus years now with the SEC on, you know, the fact that this is a new type of product, right? It's an old school 1940 act structure, uh, but the first time ever that shares can be traded peer to peer via blockchain. So as of right now, uh, the, the, the shares can be purchased directly through our website after going through KYC. Uh, but ultimately, as you, as you mentioned, these are digital assets. They're going to be traded uh, on exchanges with market makers, peer-to-peer, et cetera. Uh, it is a, a Ethereum-based token. So to your point, yes, you would hold this in your own wallet and you can do what you want with it. We are basically bridging the gap between uh, what historically was just investment vehicles uh, and now payment vehicles all into one digital wrapper.
0: All right. So now is it just basically we're just making the premium on the, you said short duration bonds? clipping coupons kind of returns on the uh, on the coin or how is it
1: yeah for, for this for this first vehicle we wanted to use the safest uh, uh, you know most liquid security in the world which is US treasuries um, ultimately just like the ETFs can basically package anything into the ETF structure we call this the BTF structure blockchain transferred funds and ultimately we will have other BTF structures as well uh, but the pilot product was the ARCA US treasury fund which is you know basically just a uh, uh, like I said, short, short duration, low yield, low volatility product, uh, just to get the pipes going with this new
0: structure. So kind of like a proof of, uh, proof of concept for, uh, traditional bond investors so that they feel comfortable with the asset class, you uh, the technology, I guess, is a better way to say it, not asset class. Absolutely. That's good. That's good. So, and so, uh, so this would be considered, uh, <laughs> Not alt in the alt coin, but alt in the sense of alternative investment. So a, uh, KYC, AML, just like you would any, any hedge fund type uh, investment or any, any alternative investment class.
1: Yeah, I mean, so. this, is, this is an investment security,
0: right? This is, this is an investment security that is simply using blockchain as
1: the wrapper uh, mm-hmm. for transactions. I and mean, we at ARCA believe that ultimately every asset is ultimately going to be digitized at some point. Um, obviously to date the most of the things in the digital asset world are sort of in that regulatory gray area, right? You, you, you're, 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 you're we, we assume they're all securities. Uh, the issuers of these tokens like to assume mm-hmm. that they're not securities. The truth is we don't know yet, but there are, is a handful of asset backed tokens, truly asset backed tokens or tokens that have gone through sec registration processes. Uh, and, and these are, you know, these are straight investment securities. Uh, the, you know, the only difference between that and a typical you know, bond or equity is, is again simply the, the 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 ability to buy, sell, and ultimately transfer these uh, these vehicles via blockchain. Do
0: You guys have any other traditional type products that you you can talk about that you're looking to bring online?
1: Nothing we can talk about yet, but uh, but yeah, part of our Arca Labs division is 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 launching a lot of these different products. Gotcha,
0: very cool. Uh, so <laughs> that's very interesting. I I saw the Arca Coin, and I didn't really take a chance to dig down it. Um, but yeah, that is, uh, that's very cool. I can, I I guess, uh, maybe I'm getting into the plumbing too much on the, on the business side, but so you, me, the investor would have a wallet. Uh, so I custody your product. And of course there's a small management fee in the smart contract, I assume. Right.
1: Yep. Absolutely. And ultimately there are third party custodians that are working with us as well. Um, we have made a, a, a few announcements uh, recently with regard to some of the custodians who have agreed to custody Arcoin, uh, But that is ultimately your choice, right? The, the whole purpose here of digital assets is, you know, you have a choice now between uh, self custody uh, or using more traditional, uh, you know, workflows that institutional investors are more comfortable with. So, you know, we're trying to make the product itself, the innovation, but the workflow with regard to how investors or how uh, individuals use it is entirely up to them.
0: That's great. Yeah, that's really good. I like it. Um, and you onboard people into the digital framework of having a wallet. Uh, Absolutely.
1: Which, yeah, I mean, a, a good example of that would be, you know, look at all the pressure corporate treasuries are under right now after what MicroStrategy and Tesla did <laughs> right now. You know, every corporate treasury in the world is, is, has at least one or two junior people right now researching Bitcoin and researching digital assets. Well, you know, you can, in, you can get involved with digital assets and blockchain and learn about custody and learn about wallets and learn about all the things that come along with blockchain without necessarily taking the price risk, you know, using a a security like this, right? So there's a lot of different use cases, but ultimately, you know, I think that's where we get excited is what you just said, which is that ultimately we believe everybody is going to adopt digital assets in some way, shape or form. Historically, Bitcoin has been the on-ramp for everyone. Uh, It doesn't have to be that way. There is certainly a a plethora of digital assets uh, out there, including some that we're launching and working on ourselves that will get the world into this ecosystem. And once they're in the ecosystem, I think we all know, you know, there's (laughs) a whole lot to do uh, once you're inside here.
0: Yeah. And it's uh, that's what is great about crypto or crypto is just anybody can pretty much, you know, take their strength and apply it, which you guys are taking your more traditional wall street strength and saying, okay, we'll pick up the, we'll pick up the pack here and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll haul it up the mountain with the legal or regulatory, traditional finance side, you, you know, which is hard for a lot of other people in crypto to get involved with because, you know, they don't come from that background. So that's uh, yeah, absolutely. a natural we, uh, progression. We pride
1: ourselves in being the boring guys from Wall Street are here in digital assets. I think, uh, you know, rightfully or wrongly, the, uh, this asset class seems to have that cowboy uh, persona. Uh, and, you know, certainly when you have uh, some people who have gotten into this space uh, after, you know, being heroes in the macro trading world or in the, you know, algorithmic trading world, uh, you know, there's that perception that everything is, is sort of the wild, wild west. Um, you know, we, we think otherwise. I mean, we're, uh, we think this is the future of finance. And sometimes you need to walk before you run and get the boring products out there first uh, to give people the, the, the vehicles that they feel more safe and, and are more appropriate to what they're trying to accomplish. And then ultimately, you know, like we said, this is a completely different workflow, a different world. Once they're in this world, anything can happen. I, I joke with people that, you know, I was never a gamer myself. But once I had an iPhone, somehow Angry Birds ended up on my phone. Um, you know, that's what's going to happen here, right? You know, might you might come to the digital asset world via Bitcoin or via Rcoin or via something else. But once you're in, there's a whole lot of other things that might end up, uh, you know, on your phone or on your computer that you might play around with and mess around with and ultimately have some fun with.
0: Yeah, that's that's absolutely the case. Uh, we all know the path really, really well. And if you don't know the path really, really well, you just heard it. So. Uh, (laughs) that's uh until until i meet the person who doesn't go that route i'll we'll probably stick with that uh scenario let's um first thing i had to reach out to my community and ask them I, i you know i posted your most recent uh blog post and um one of our guys uh not cowboyish by any means, crypto Derek Zoolander. Yes. Uh, <laughs> what criteria do you evaluate before investing in a new crypto project?
1: Sure. So we, you know, my team all comes from different areas of finance. Um, you know, besides just me and my boring Lehman Merrill Citadel resume, uh, I've got a, a gentleman by the name of Hassan Basiri who spent 12 years doing uh, international uh, m and cross border MA at KPMG. Um, I've got a, uh, uh, a head of research who spent uh, years doing early stage due diligence for, uh, for crowdfunding platforms and venture capital firms. So we're a little different than some of the other uh, financial firms in, in digital assets. You know, historically, when we came into this space, at least, there was really only like two kinds of investors, right? You had your algorithmic quantitative investors on one side who quite frankly didn't care what they were trading as long as there was high volatility and correlations and, and liquidity. And you had your venture capital firms on the other side who were really good at seeing the future, but necessarily weren't necessarily taking advantage of what this asset class had to offer in terms of liquidity and different attributes of tokens and um, you know, even just capital markets events and catalysts. So we kind of fall in the middle. Um, we're not doing super early stage investing where it's you know, pre-product, pre-revenue, pre launch um, but we're also not you know, waiting until, until these things have the liquidity profile of Bitcoin to start whipping them around because we can trade them a hundred times over. We generally look for strong management teams. Um, we generally look for uh, tokens that accrue real economic value, meaning just like the corporate bond market and there's an infinite combinations of coupons and maturities and call structures and covenants. We look for tokens that have the right attributes, right? Whether it's an amortization feature, uh, a dividend type feature you know, some sort of velocity sync, something that accrues economic value to the token itself. Um, And then we look at the metrics, you know, we look at the real KPIs. We're looking at, uh, you know, is there user growth? Is there volume growth? Is there transactions? You know, know, that's basically what we are looking for when we make an investment. And ultimately we do it top down. You know, we come up with themes that we think are going to be powerful drivers of economic gains. And then we go bottoms up and we say, okay, well, now that we understand the theme, what's the best way to express that theme? And is there an instrument out there that will help us do that? Uh, And the reason that last part is so important is, you know, look at Bitcoin and its saturation right now. There's, you know, an infinite amount of Bitcoin products, it seems like right now, and they all have incredibly different return profiles. Like I was just looking at the Grayscale Trust, GBTC versus actual Bitcoin. Um, Over the last three years, starting in the summer of 2018, uh, GBTC has underperformed Bitcoin by about 300%. uh, 300%, 300%, not 300 basis points, 300%. You know, that, that's, that's insane, right? You think you're getting exposure to the theme that you want, but you expressed it in the wrong vehicle. Um, and that's ultimately what we try to do is we say, you know, whether it's Web 3.0, DeFi, sports and gaming, digitization of the fan experience, you name it, we come up with a theme and then we look for the instruments that are going to help us express that theme.
0: Nice. Have you faced much uh, challenge with it being a U.S.? Or, I guess, I don't know if you have an international... Uh, fund or an international product as well. But let's just assume we're talking about US-based. Have you found that to be a challenge, getting access to what you want to get access to? Um,
1: definitely, if you're a US individual investor, it is there. there is uh, uh, some nuances between what you can and can't invest in, right? The US uh, certainly, in some ways, they're doing regulation the right way, right? They're, they're, they're purposely slow playing it. They recognize that they don't want to all of a sudden have sweeping regulation that is going to be obsolete in three months because the industry is evolving so quickly. But at the same time, it's sort of embarrassing that the U.S. is on the same list with North Korea and Iran with regard to like countries that can't access certain sites. So (laughs) there is there's definitely that tug of war right now between the right regulation and too much restriction. Uh, with regard to you know us and our structures, I mean you know we we are uh, uh, capable of investing across the globe, and as a result, there hasn't been any restrictions to what we're doing. Um, but you know there are definitely some opportunities that U.S. investors are missing out on as a result.
0: Yeah, I mean it's tough when you're getting 200 percent a year every year uh, on Bitcoin to really feel bad about ourselves. But uh... <laughs> well, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, you know, it's, it's funny true. S-
1: you say that, but I, I think it's totally different, right? I mean I think Bitcoin. And every other digital asset started in the same kind of uh, uh, you know, mold where they were all sort of the same assets at first. Nobody really understood what the differences were. A lot of times they had the same trading pairs. So as a result, there was natural correlation between them. This asset class has changed a lot in the last three years. Um, you know, Bitcoin is really more of a large cap macro asset now that is much more tied to the dollar and rates uh, and, and, and uh, you know, global monetary policy than it is to other digital assets. And similarly, most of the assets that we're investing in within our funds are the opposite. We, our, our correlation is going down versus Bitcoin. And the correlation is going up versus the Russell 2000 and the Nasdaq. Because for the most part, these are early stage technology companies uh, that are growing with real revenues and real cash flows and have simply found a new medium uh, for capital raising via token and basically has inserted a token into their capital structure next to debt and equity, and have found different ways to distribute value back to their uh, token holders. So, in some ways, yes, you're right. Like Bitcoin has been a great investment, and you don't need to invest another way in anything else. On the other hand, they're not even comparable anymore, right? It'd be the equivalent of me saying I'm an ETF investor, and they'd be like, "Well, what does that mean? Do you invest in healthcare <laughs> ETFs or do you invest in you know high yield bond ETFs?" You know, just because you invest in digital assets doesn't mean they're all the same. And I think that's ultimately where we found that find our alpha, but also where investors are slowly, slowly, slowly starting to understand that. Um, they still come to this asset class, usually because of Bitcoin. Uh, that's usually their first starting point, but um, they are starting to recognize that there's more to it. And, and it is, it's, an, it's, a, it's a challenge because, you know, the media talks about Bitcoin all the time. Uh, a lot of the richest and most powerful celebrities in this space are Bitcoin only people. It's very difficult to untrain people. It's almost like a, you know, if you ever had someone walk into a, 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 a golf course with a bad swing and after a few lessons, you're like, why don't we just switch you to the other side because we're never going to fix this bad swing. That's <laughs> uh, kind of what we're doing in some cases with some of the investors we speak to. It's like, you know, they are, They're so focused on Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and how they're all the same that we have to almost erase their memory and start over and be like, no, there's a very big difference between a cryptocurrency. And a protocol or a platform, and an asset-backed token, and a pass-through token that's generating real revenues. So you know, it, it's it's an education journey, and I, I do I would say that people who are only invested in Bitcoin uh, are not necessarily missing out, but they're definitely missing.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, there's uh, <laughs> the the DeFi situation, or uh, which I guess is uh, more broadly, uh, I, I guess actually, let me pull throw that one back and let's talk about web 3.0 uh, which is everything on you know basically going web 2.0 being mobile, web 1.0 being here's the internet, web 3.0. I'll let you take it from there on what you're looking at, how you categorize Web
1: 3.0. Yeah. I mean to me, Web 3.0 is simply taking all of the same tools and services that we've been accustomed to on the internet that have historically gone through a data provider or a service provider. And now being able to do all of that same, those same services, but being able to be in control of your own assets and in control of your own data, right? Most of the growth on the internet has come from the intermediaries, right? The Facebooks, the Amazons, the Netflixes, the Twitters, etc. you know, they're collecting your information and they're utilizing that information to grow their businesses. But that information is free to you from a cost standpoint, but ultimately you're paying with regard to the data and the information that you're putting up. Um, Why aren't we more in control of that data information? And that's part of what web 3.0 is all about is allowing you to have these same uh, access points, but to control your own fate, to control your own data. And whether that means, you know, if you're a content creator um, or you are a, uh, a, a, you know a lurker or a browser uh, or you're an advertiser, et cetera it's just being able to target more of this directly to uh, the consumers without having to go through those centralized power parties. So there's a lot of facets of Web 3.0, you know, from, from file storage and archiving um, you know, to ultimately, like I said, content creation and advertising. Uh, but ultimately, most of these are still in the early forms. Uh, you know, it's, not, it, it's harder than people think to change workflows. You know, we might all hate Facebook you know, empirically or ideologically. But if that's part of your workflow, it's kind of hard to change until someone else comes out there that has 2 billion people on there and all of the same features and services that Facebook has, right? So it's gonna take some time. Um, I think it's definitely gonna be more about UI and technology than it is gonna be about ideology. You know, We can all say that we hate giving up our data, but you know, when it's much easier to do it than it is something else, you might not do it. So it's gonna take some time, but there's, there's real growth happening in web 3.0 and we're certainly excited to be, uh, to be investing alongside that growth.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, from that, we get into, I want to go down into the DeFi spot, kind of, it seems that your focus from <laughs> giving somebody the, let's swing left-handed in the golf course instead of the right-handed to starting uh, getting people out of Bitcoin, which I probably would assume also means Ethereum, like as an asset versus as a utility or as a, as a protocol. Uh, I imagine the majority of your work is probably on, on that sort of the Ethereum or, or other um, networks like that, I guess, later mm-hmm. ones. Uh, how involved, are you guys involved in have, you know, DeFi Summer and, and everything that's happened there? You know, we're at, what, 43, 44 billion locked value, total locked value mm-hmm. uh, in the DeFi space. I imagine that's not just a bunch of crypto Derek Zoolanders. It's probably some real funds. Uh, involved to make a number that big? How involved are you guys in the DeFi space?
1: So, so we've been very active investors in the tokens that are uh, backing and supporting these DeFi protocols. Um, in the specific fund vehicle, that our flagship fund, we are not uh, putting any capital at risk in the DeFi ecosystem. Uh, we are launching other vehicles, and we have some proprietary capital where we are researching and using these these vehicles. But uh, you know, like any hedge fund, we are. Uh, we, we don't participate in style drift and we have a mandate and, and in this particular fund, we're not doing that. Um, but ultimately, you know, DeFi is real and there's a lot of opportunity in there. Um, ultimately, uh, you know, when we first started investing in DeFi about two years ago, truthfully, we were kind of just taking like a blind basket across different pockets of it. I remember actually sitting around a round table with my team and we were like, just trying to map out DeFi. And we're like, well, what is there? There's asset management, there's insurance, there's, you know, decentralized trading, there's lending and borrowing. You know, how do we get broad exposure with you know, a, a small percentage of the fund across a lot of different things? Now it's much more traditional financial analysis. It's not spreading your bets around different areas that may or may not work. Now you have real cash flows and real revenues to look at uh, from an investing standpoint to make you know, real decisions using DCF analysis or yield analysis, et cetera. Um, and you know, it's probably some of the cheapest securities on the planet out there in, in sense of price to sales and price to earnings, c- coupled with the growth and the yields that are being generated here. Um, what I think is interesting, though, is we hear a lot of naysayers talking about DeFi and being like, it's too risky, you can't use it. And you can just tell right away when the people say that, that one, they've never used DeFi and two, they don't quite understand how it works because it, there's a huge difference between in, investing in the token that ultimately has you know, uh, bootstrapped and, and captures the value of a protocol versus being the one who actually submits the capital into the protocol and has the capital at risk, right? It'd be akin to saying... You know, I'm afraid of crashing in a plane and therefore I can never buy Delta stock. And that makes no sense, right? Because other people are using the planes and therefore there is going to be revenues and therefore there's going to be accretion to the Delta shares, even if you never fly a plane yourself because you're terrified. So that's the that's the best way to describe this. And we can actively invest in this ecosystem, even if we're not using it. Now, the flip side of that is this uh, uh, asset class was designed to be active participation. It wasn't designed to be a passive investor. right? You do get more out of it when you are an active participant. If you are providing the capital or you are um, uh, uh, you know, using your assets as collateral, you will de- definitely get higher yields and higher returns than if you are a passive investor. But that doesn't exclude you from being a passive investor. And I think that would be my takeaway is that at the individual level, everybody should be experimenting with DeFi right now and putting some assets in MetaMask and connecting your wallets and testing some of these different features. At the investment level, you probably should find the ones that you actually enjoy using and make some investments. And they don't have to be mutually exclusive, but they can be.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, one of the, one of the most obvious thing, easiest ways I should say to get into it uh, on, on these major crypto bank exchanges, uh, Kraken, Gemini, Coinbase for us in the United States, at least, uh, (laughs) <laughs> Where Kraken has lacked in their UX skills uh, on the main platform, their UX in the staking platform that they have, you can just jump on there and stake Polkadot or, or even better Kasama at the moment uh, for 12%. Mm-hmm. They're paying 20% if you stake on, if, if you go into the real DeFi world without that nice, pretty wrapper on it. So they're making an 8%, you know, they're making 8% off you, but where else are you getting 12% on, you know, a token or or on something that's just that easy to get access to. So I would say.
1: Well, that's the irony right now too, is that there's trillions and trillions of dollars of wealth out there that are doing anything they can to get a three to 5% yield and physically can't get it anywhere. Right. And then meanwhile, you've got this incredibly flourishing DeFi ecosystem where most of the participants don't want 5 to 10%. They're looking for 5% you know, to 10% per hour. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and you know so you have this mismatch right now between what's available in the digital asset world relative to the type of investors that are in here versus what's available yeah. in the real world compared to what they want. So I think it's only a matter of time before these worlds converge, right? These yields are valuable and people want to earn them. Um, but I do, I do think it's also really important for uh, investors of all sorts to understand where these yields come from, right? There's a difference between staking and earning inflation rewards, right, which is essentially a company or project basically rewarding you for being an early user by, by giving you uh, more tokens or, or more, you know, not shares, obviously, but the tokens represent a quasi-equity. Um, that's a very different type of return than if you're using a, you know, a centralized exchange or, or like a BlockFi or a Celsius or an Exo and you don't really know where that yield is coming from. And I think that's part of the power of DeFi is that everything's on chain, and you can see it all. You know exactly where that yield is coming from if you decide to lend assets to AV. You know, you know exactly where that yield is coming from if you stake an asset uh, directly with a protocol or a platform. When you're doing it through a centralized company like Kraken, or you're doing, uh, uh, you know, some sort of a yield enhancement through a BlockFi, Celsius, Nexo, etc., they're basically just hedge funds, right? You don't know exactly what they're doing. And I don't use the word hedge fund negatively. I run a hedge fund. I think it's a, you know, I think risk is a great thing. Risk is a terrible thing, though, when you don't know that you're the one taking risk. And I think that's where, to me, the centralized exchanges and the centralized companies need to do a better job of transparency, right? For anybody who has kind of followed the grayscale arb trade uh, and, and, and BlockFi, for example, like BlockFi is a great company. These guys just got a $3 billion equity valuation. They're, you know, they're, they are definitely doing the right things from a risk management standpoint. The problem is they're acting like a bank. You go there and in 30 seconds you sign up and you deposit your assets and you think you're just earning some risk-free return on your assets. When in reality, behind the scenes, they're doing risky arbitrage lending and, and grayscale trades and all these different asset liability mismatches where at any given time, there could be a blow up. And again, I don't think there will be a blow up at BlockFi. I know that team, I think they're very good, but why aren't they disclosing it, right? If, you know, their answer is we're going on podcasts and we're talking about it but they're not disclosing it on the website at the point of purchase, right? It's the equivalent of, uh, you know, if I buy a chocolate bar and they refuse to put any of the sugar information on the label, but three months later, uh, you know, I, I, I go on a, a podcast and I hear that I'm, you know, ingested you know, tons of fat into my system without knowing it. So I think there is an obligation to be more transparent. Um, that being said, again, as an individual, you should absolutely be experimenting with these things and, and trying to learn where that, you know, how do I generate these yields? How do I get these returns? but also don't be afraid to ask questions and be like, wait a minute, you know, this, if this sounds too good to be true, maybe it is, how are you generating it? What are you doing? And, um, you know, I think, uh, uh, it, it's incumbent upon everybody in this industry to seek those answers and demand those answers.
0: Yeah. Well that you wrote a great piece on that, um, two weeks ago about, uh, BlockFi and where all that money was. I mean, BlockFi has done an amazing job of figuring out how to do inbound marketing, uh, basically for a hedge fund, um, right? I mean, yeah. how many hedge funds would love to have the advertising capabilities of uh, what BlockFi has to get, you know, and and take investors of like here's five dollars as opposed yeah. to a minimum of a hundred and you know all those other uh, 1940 Act stuff. Yeah. Exactly. And people, I mean, people hate
1: regulation, but that's the reason for regulation, right? Like how does a, how does a hedge fund pretend it's a bank, even though it has no bank protection and taken $10 billion of assets from $5 at a time from people, but a real hedge fund has to only take accredited investors and qualified purchasers and go through 18 months of due diligence hell before you can take the money. When in reality, you're basically offering the exact same service. You're taking risks to provide a yield. And I think, you know, ultimately that's where regulation can be a good thing is in making sure these risks are disclosed. And, and I'm all, I, I think the accredited investor law is stupid. I'm all for people being able to do whatever they want with their money. But again, you should understand what, what's happening. Right. And there's an example of that. There's a, there's a small company called Cred Capital that recently filed for bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they lost about a uh, hundred million dollars of customer assets in, in, in the course of doing this. And none of those hundred million dollars of, of, of depositors had any idea the risks that this company was taking. Uh, and, and, and that's a problem, you know, that's a, that's a real problem to me, right? I, again, I'm not some ideologist. I'm not the, like, you know, everything has to be decentralized or nothing can be centralized. I think p- uh, consumers and individuals and investors should have choice, but that short, that choice should be educated and education is, uh, uh, something that especially the younger generation now, the millennials, and they're very good at right? They like to be self-taught. They like to go on Robin hood and mess around. They like to go on Coinbase and mess around. But we can't intentionally hide information. People should be able to research and find that information and, and make educated decisions on what they're doing with their capital. Yeah,
0: that's absolutely the case. And you know, certainly, people like you coming on podcasts and doing these sort of things, giving it from a different perspective, uh, is definitely useful in the business. Where, uh, and this, the, you know, you know, to BlockFi's credit, I guess this is probably where a lot of their uh, let's call them LPs. <laughs> a lot of their uh, their people probably were on podcasts getting it out there, but I, I absolutely agree that there is a lot of that. Um, being like with DeFi where you have the smart contract and you can actually see what is happening, you can open it up and take a look say, okay, this is what they're doing, this is what they're doing, this is what they're doing there. You go to a BlockFi, you're just assuming that the the nice social network type You're the product is um, is in your favor. We'll find out. Not that I won't don't have a BlockFi account, and definitely looking forward to the Visa card. But uh. yeah, for sure.
1: And and you know what I mean? Like you know, there's also some hypocrisy there too, right? In that there are definitely hacks in DeFi ecosystems, right? We've seen some protocols be hacked, but the difference is when there is a when there is a hack, you know about it within minutes, if not hours, or you know certainly by days, and usually there's some sort of a remedy right away most of the time when financial services firms get in trouble, it's not because they made a mistake, it's because they doubled or tripled down to try to get, dig themselves out of the stake. Again, for anybody who's a real nerd out there like myself, go read the docket, the bankruptcy docket from Cred Capital. They didn't do anything wrong at first. They had a regular business where they were taking deposits and they were lending it out and they were earning that spread and paying their depositors. But when they got in trouble in March, 2020, then they started going crazy trying to get the money back. They started levering up, they started making loans to Asian loan sharks at 30% yields. Like you start doing all these things to dig yourself out of a hole. And then all of a sudden you find out that you lost all your capital and you have to file bankruptcy and you get fraud charges. So, you know, I don't, I'm certainly not comparing a BlockFi to a credit capital, right? Credit capital is facing fraud charges. BlockFi is, you know, at least to date, very talented risk managers. But the point is, you know, in the DeFi world, if there is a mistake, you're going to see it right away, and there's going to be a remedy. Whereas you have no idea what's going on behind the scenes of some of these centralized firms.
0: That's true. Well, and you know, Lehman Bear Stearns is you know, you can pull open the code of the project you're looking at, and you know, like you you can't pull open the code of Lehman. Yep. Uh, you couldn't at the time. Like, like, who could have walked their way, you know, backed their way into that uh, that whole scenario or or night? Um, you know, like all those different firms that went down back then, at least with yep. you know, nowadays, all you have to do is learn how to code a little bit. Uh, you don't even have to really fully understand the code. Uh, a lot of it is, is just really laid out and you just need to start writing it down and you can figure out those sort of things. But that's, it's, the transparency of that is, is truly uh, different for those who have gone through the Lehman and the Bear and all those different experiences.
1: Yep. hundred percent. Yeah, exactly. I'm not, I'm not pro centralization
0: or decentralization.
1: I'm pro transparency. And I think, I think, you know, you hit it on the head, right? These are, we now have the technology and the social networks and the ability to communicate in real time that there shouldn't be any more guesswork.
0: Yeah. yeah, And that makes it a lot more of a meritocracy. It's just how hard can you work? How hard can you learn? Exactly. Uh, it's all there for free to get. So, okay, let's, um, another question we had, and this one's somewhat relevant, and this was the original question we had before we had power issues. Uh, so last week, and you did a great job of explaining, or, uh, (laughs) Jerome Powell came out last week and said exactly what he had been saying for the last year and exactly what everybody thought he was going to say. And unfortunately he did exactly what he was supposed to do, uh, and at the, you know, about a week or two prior to that, the 10-year yield or, you know, the yield basically uh, in treasuries just started ripping and which made for a more dramatic or a more tense moment when Powell started, you know, when, when the Fed announced their information and uh, kept everything the same. What are your thoughts on how, rise if rising rates happen, uh, what are your thoughts on how that might affect the general markets or crypto markets and, and the whole space generally?
1: Sure. Yeah, I mean, just there's a lot of things to unpack there, right? So, so, so to start with, low rates is definitely good for risk taking, right? I mean, you could, you could pinpoint back to March of 2020, why every risk asset on the planet has gone higher. It's because the dollar was going lower and rates were going lower, right? And that, that forces people into riskier assets. And it also, more importantly, makes the present value of assets higher uh, when you're discounting at a lower rate. So that was definitely good for risk assets. As rates started to rise, you could see capital rotation start to happen. Um, you know, Deutsche Bank put out a great chart recently looking at the returns by sector and asset class from March of 2020 to November 6, when the vaccine was announced. And then subsequently from November 6 to present uh, after the vaccine. And you see a huge rotation. You've seen uh, uh, all the stay-at-home stocks, you know, your Pelotons and your Zooms and all your tech stocks ripping from March to November. And then all of them have struggled at the expense of consumer cyclicals banks, energy, all the companies and projects that do well in a rising rate, you know, inflationary environment. Uh, you know, basically, as GDP grows, you know, those are the sectors that do better. Uh, in fact, the only asset that did well in both environments was actually Bitcoin, which had uh, basically triple digit returns in both periods. But um, you know, So rising rates do matter in the sense that it does suck leverage out of the system. Uh, it does make present value calculations lower. It does uh, uh, inhibit some risk-taking when you can earn a you know, quote-unquote risk-free rate again. Um, so it definitely will suck some of that uh, risk-taking out of the system. That being said, at an absolute level, you know, we're still at the lowest absolute yields that you know, we've ever seen uh, other than six months ago. And mm-hmm. you know, even the steepness of the curve, which you know, is, is, can be tricky for a lot of risk managers, it's still not anywhere close to the steepness of the curve when we've come out of prior recessions, right? I mean, the, you know, I think the twos, tens and twos, thirties curve was in the three to 500 basis points range uh, historically. And now it's, you know, we're talking about 150 basis points. So I don't think, I don't think the levels themselves matter. What matters is you know, when leverage unwinds, anything can happen, right? We saw it at the end of 2019 with the repo, uh, we saw it in you know, March of 2020 when uh, you know, uh, certainly there were some firms that got bailed out uh, we saw it even you know, last month with the Blockbuster and AMC and, and, and GameStop stuff where you know, Melvin Capital and others went under. Right, Leverage is a dangerous thing. And when leverage starts to unwind, uh, which it does when, when rates start to rise, then you can see the, the effects from that. In fact, we already talked about one of those instances, which is the grayscale trade. Right, the, the grayscale trusts have been trading at a premium to net asset value for three years. And now they're trading at a significant discount. And I don't think that discount's ever going away. I think that's the new mm-hmm. norm. And that doesn't really matter if you've just taking long directional risk in a grayscale trust. It does matter if you were borrowing Bitcoin and uh, uh, converting it into grayscale Bitcoin or if you're borrowing Ethereum and converting it into grayscale ETH trust, all of a sudden you've got leverage and that leverage is is amplifying your losses. So I think rising rates can certainly create individual hiccups within the financial market. I don't think we're anywhere close to systemic risk. more importantly, I think the Fed, as you said, is just boring now. I mean, you know, again, we were talking earlier before we jumped on the podcast here. You know, you as a trader on a on a on a Merrill or a Lehman or a Bear, or wherever, you know, you used to be glued to your screens when that 8:30 a.m. economic data came out or when the Fed spoke. You know, now we had the worst retail sales I think in, in in two years the other day, and the markets didn't move, and no one even cared, and half the traders were getting bacon, egg, and cheese sandwiches in the cafeteria because it just, <laughs> you know, we're we're in this new norm where. The Fed is telling us where we're going and they're not changing regardless of weekly or monthly data. And the numbers don't matter anymore. We've got this implicit Fed put uh, bad news is good news. And, you know, go, go, go enjoy your, uh, go enjoy your sandwiches while you, uh, while you wait to hear what, uh, what, when the power, when the Powell policy finally does change.
0: I remember the the, uh, uh, the, the briefcase watch of uh, what was his, um, was his name uh, uh greenspan briefcase watch on cnbc and they would have you know him walking across the street with how big his briefcase was and everybody would be making adjustments if his briefcase was a little too heavy and uh <laughs> i mean that that's to the point to yeah. further to drive the point home there is now you know that was the thing that everybody paid attention to was his briefcase size now it's like they don't even pay attention to the well i don't i don't pay attention to the news conference uh, yeah. So it's come a long way, thanks CNBC.
1: Yeah, uh, exactly. And and part of that too is, is, you know this goes back to again, just the last 10 plus years of just information flow. Uh, it's rare that you can surprise markets anymore anyway, right? All this stuff gets leaked. In fact, yeah, I mentioned the retail sales number when they were down 3% versus the expectations of down 0.4%. Well, the night before Bank of America and JP Morgan and others were already getting the whisper number out there that, hey, it's gonna be really much worse than we thought. And, you know, that's that's being leaked directly from the Fed, you know, through the Wall Street Journal and to the banks. So, you know, it's hard to surprise the market anymore. And, and certainly to the Fed's credit, what they have done is say, we're not going to surprise you anymore. We are going to be as boring and as stoic as can be. And good luck trying to find a single word difference between the last thing we said and this one, because there's not going to be anything. You know, we are not changing policy. We are going to be as loose as can be. And, you know, they're going to encourage excessive risk taking until then, you know, the next crisis uh, forms and, and, you know, sends us into a tailspin again.
0: You know, it uh, strikes me as we're talking about that, it, it, you know, I always thought it was a little odd that you had an attorney as the Fed chair. Um, and as you're saying that, you know, word for word, try to find something different. I was like, well, what better person would you want to have in that role than an attorney who really values uh, you know word economy and the the actual meaning of a word uh, versus an economist who you know will will talk about the aggregate supply demand curve and you know like kind of get blind you in a bunch of things as as greenspan would or or right. whatnot. not and so that uh that that is probably i mean not probably that that just further validates what you're talking about that they're truly focused on getting the exact same out there—the most boring information you could possibly get. No hyperbole, no changes. When a change happens, it'll be telegraphed months in advance. Jim Lightner is um, Falcon Management uh, done all right for himself uh, as a as an investor. He uh, he's kind of the you know the first person to really get out there and say, "Look, the Fed tells you exactly what they're going to do." Uh, this was before everybody started realizing that the Fed was telling you what they're about to do. He's like, if you just listen to, if you just listen to him, he's t- Powell, Jerome Powell. If you listen to him, he's telling you exactly what's going to happen, and you can like plan that out for the next couple of years. So when you try to make the trade different, you're just going to give your money away to me. That was yep. Lightner's uh, thing, but it, it's absolutely, you know, figuring that out two years ago was probably uh, pretty astute on his end um, and yeah, everybody sure. else's. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and, and make no mistake about it. Again, you know, even with rising rates, uh, you know, again, we, this is still an incredibly bullish environment for risk assets. And, and you know, digital assets are a part of that. Now, you know, again, going back to what we said earlier, I think there's a completely different investment thesis for why you would own Bitcoin versus why you would own Ethereum versus why you might own a DeFi token or a sports and gaming token or an NFT token, et cetera. Uh, but they all have a commonality, which is you know, you're further down the risk spectrum. And that is the environment that we will be in as long as rates are low. And as long as the dollar is, is, you know, flat to declining. So I I think ultimately, this is still an incredible environment for investing in digital assets. Uh, And more importantly, you know, even if you're a mean reversion believer, you know, if you believe that you know equities at a 34 pe is unsustainable unsustainable or high yield bonds at 4.3% yields and you know five times debt to ebitda if that's unsustainable versus the mean that might be right those are established you know uh, markets that have, that have been around a long time to give you data points to suggest that you're right that these are probably stretched in terms of valuations but in digital assets i think this is a secular shift and i think every company in the world is eventually going to have a digital asset in their capital structure And I think we're just, you know, starting with regard to what this asset class is going to look like. So even though we've gone up, you know, hundreds, even thousand percents in the last six to 12 months, I don't know if you can have reversion to the mean, because I'm not sure a mean has ever been established yet. Uh, And I think that's the biggest difference between investing in a new asset class like this versus, you know, stretching for the last, you know, couple percent uh, of more established asset classes like, uh, you know, like like high yield bonds or equities or, or, or even real estate.
0: Yeah, so it's really just a well, and and you can see it on a on a monthly basis. Every new month, you can literally see the 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 uh, what I guess the the market cap of crypto, whatever set you know, whether you're looking at you know large cap DeFi, wh- wherever your you know uh, currencies or smart contracts or whatever different part of the asset class. Um, or different asset classes, you can definitely see a dollar cost averaging thing that just people are saying, I, "I'm going to th- go ahead and throw some exposure into this now," just on an average person's basis. And when you have those things in place, it you know you you could find yourself getting in on a on a polka dot at like three dollars and just say, "Okay, I'm buying a basket of top ten DeFi's yeah. and you know they ten x within six months, uh, and you continue to dollar cost average because it is constantly thrown in there. We're not, I'm not even talking about the, the stimulus checks, but definitely we're seeing a dollar cost averaging has really taken over since around probably, you know, when Bitcoin right around the 30,000 area, to me, it became extremely obvious that uh, everything was coming in, but over the summer, of course, with, with DeFi, it, you know, <laughs> substantially different than 2017 too, because it was, you know, two dudes in a white paper, uh, in twenty seventeen raising hundreds of millions of dollars. And now you actually have real businesses, real assets. Uh, you know, it's a it's an amazing time. Yeah,
1: and you you have you have fundamentals supporting the price growth. I mean, not not in all cases, but I think, you know, a lot of the people who are not in this asset class yet just assume that these kind of returns are are, you know, unsustainable and therefore it must be a bubble. What they don't understand is that there's a big difference, right? Like when Bitcoin goes higher, you can't value Bitcoin. You can look at it on a relative value basis and say that the overall market cap is lower than it should be if you believe it's digital gold or if you believe it's money. But there's no real way to value Bitcoin. You can, you can trade it, but you can't value it. Um, but you can value a DeFi asset. Um, you know, for instance, Uniswap, one of the, you know, the, the largest decentralized exchange, when it was trading at $2 when it first came six months ago, it was trading at a price to sales of about three times. And they were, they were run rating about $300 million of annualized revenue. Well, now the price is thirty dollars, right? It's up fifteen x, and ultimately, um, you know, you you could argue that okay, well, therefore, it must be expensive. It's time to sell. But the reality is, they're now run rating a billion two of revenue. Yeah. You know, their growth yeah. has been tremendous, and I think that is you know the, the price to sales ratio is a little higher now. It's you know it's a little over ten times versus around three times. But you could warrant that this should be trading at a fifty times price to earnings. Uh, based on the growth, right? Now, Nexus Mutual is another favorite example I have. Nexus Mutual is is insuring all of DeFi. Uh, If you believe that DeFi is one of the biggest growth engines, then you would argue that insurance on these DeFi protocols to protect against those hacks is something that is going to to, uh, uh, be huge. Well, Nexus Mutual has $300 million worth of Ethereum in their capital pool. The net market cap of Nexus Mutual above that capital pool is like 50 million bucks. it's, you know, this is insane, right? I mean, like it is trading at 1.1 times book value uh, versus, you know, look at other insurance companies like, um, you know, Zoom or Lemonade, and they're trading at 30 to 40 times book value. So, you know, even though the price of Nexus Mutual is up 5x in the last six months, you know, you could argue that it's still incredibly undervalued. And I think that's where when you start to really do the research and you start to really do the work on what's happening in this ecosystem, uh, you'll realize that price does not mean cheap or expensive well, the fundamentals are real and they're growing faster than any other asset class we've ever seen
0: yeah well it's it, it's uh, as if <laughs> it's as if you have the ability to have uh, early access to venture type returns in a highly liquid highly ish liquid uh, environment without having to meet the teams and without having to go through your deal sheets and you know putting on your your uh, your vest and going out and doing the meeting and, you know, all the stuff that VC type work involves your Patagucci vest is key. <laughs> um, it, yeah. I, so it basically it is, it, and it's very, very simple. In a venture world, you're, you're pre-revenue. A lot of times you're uh, sometimes pre-product or certainly pre-product market fit or whatever. Uh, and you're getting the same sort of returns that we can get, or we have gotten, I guess, recently, uh, in the last six months, but you can do it from your home. You can do it from a spreadsheet where you can pull down a thousand, um, a thousand assets and, you know, come up with a, 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 you know, some sort of financial model to compare these against PE probably is just based on this one is the easiest way to look at that. Uh, that seems like a pretty easy one to throw in a spreadsheet, sort it by uh sort it by the price uh, PE ratio and, and which what your tier of expensive, cheap, and undervalued is, and probably just get after it. That's a fairly simple analysis. <laughs> and a lot
1: of these tools are freely available. It's the fact that most of the investors in the space aren't thinking that way yet. right? We mentioned the VCs are generally not looking at that because they're looking at pre-revenue, pre-product anyway. The traders are certainly not looking at that. They're looking at charts. But this information is out there. If you choose to look at it, I mean, there's a great site called Token Terminal where you can look at the price to sales and the price to earnings and the price to book and all these different metrics, and it's calculated for you. So what we found the most interesting when we started ARCA is we had to dig really hard to get this information when we first started uh, uh, valuing these companies. I mean, we we have investment memos and models for every investment we make. Which is obviously counterintuitive relative to a lot of the people's uh, 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 perceptions of the space, which is which is that it's just being traded for the sake of trading. But we had to invent a lot of these models. Um, you know, we, there, there is no Graham and Dodd or Frank Fabozzi in this space yet. You know, we 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 had to be the, we had to be those uh, people ourselves. But now it's it's a lot easier. This information's out there. There's a there's a handful of people providing this data. Uh, there's just not that many people interpreting the data, right? You know, th- there is still a lot of information that goes undetected or undiscovered uh, in this space that, you know, traditional financial analysts and traditional traders could take a look at this and recognize like, wow, you know, this is up 10x, but it's still cheap. And I still want to own
0: it. Sure. Yeah, well, and you know, kind of the just, you know, the nativeness of the digital currency means that it kicks off a tremendous amount of data already. So it's pretty much you just you, the individual deciding, I would like to pull this data down and and analyze it, or Token Terminal, Masari. You know, there there's so many data visualization and and uh, analysis tools out there that are free for so much of it, and then you know if they do a good job, uh, they they wrap it up in a monthly fee or something like that, if you know to support the work of five analysts to really deliver uh, great product. So this is really cool. Yeah. I pulled and, up term, and the, the
1: irony of course, is that a lot of traditional analysts are waiting for the Coinbase IPO or the, the direct listing, right? Because they're like, well, that's a, that's a company that I can model. Well, once you actually build your model, you'll realize that basically 95% of their revenue is driven by the price of Bitcoin anyway. So right. after you go through all the, all the modeling, you'll realize that this is just, you know, massive le- uh, operating leverage to Bitcoin. And that's no different than, you know, galaxy or Anchorage or any other, you know, quote unquote, crypto stocks that are out there. They're highly levered to Bitcoin. There's a lot of money and wealth that is you know, directly uh, tied to the fate of Bitcoin. Whereas when you get into DeFi and Web 3.0 and sports and gaming and NFTs, this is an entirely different asset class that just happens to share the same digital asset wrapper. And the investment drivers are totally different. So, you know, by all means, if you are looking at these crypto stocks and you're looking at you know Bitcoin, you should be expanding and looking at these other areas because you'll find that. Uh, it's one of the few asset classes left that is not overly saturated by, uh, uh, you know, hundreds of people looking at the same information and drawing the same conclusions.
0: Yeah, that's easy to see. Yeah. Um, well, I got to, I'm going to start wrapping up here for you let you get back to your day. Uh, but the last thing I wanted to ask is what do you, well, this is kind of a speculative thing, but how much do you think Coinbase of their IPO that they're going to buy? Uh, digital assets with those proceeds? Or do you think that will happen at all?
1: Well, well, there's not going to be any proceeds. They're not doing an IPO. They're doing a direct listing. So with, um, and, and, and that's partly by design I believe because as a result of doing a direct listing rather than a sale, they don't have to lock up any of their investors. So their investors are liquid on day one rather than having a six month lockup. Uh, But also because this is, this this company is just printing cash right now. I mean, they did a billion three of revenue last year. I bet they do a billion and a half this quarter alone, just because right. Bitcoin is up 4X. Um, You know, this is a six to $10 billion revenue company that's probably gonna fetch a hundred to $150 billion equity valuation. And for good reason, I mean, they were just printing money. Uh, I don't think that they will use that money per se. I don't think they're, they're going to use the cash on their balance sheet per se to invest in digital assets. But what I do think is that there's a ton and ton and ton of people in this ecosystem, they're gonna get very rich off of this direct listing. And they're going to pour that money into the ecosystem. So they're going to start their own venture arms. They're going to invest directly into these assets. So they're, you know, we talked about asset rotation, just like in the equity market, where asset the rotation is happening into banks and energy right now. The same thing's happening in digital assets. All this new money that's coming in from Wall Street to buy Bitcoin, that Bitcoin money is being recycled into Ethereum and Solano and you know Algorand and 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 you know Polkadot, et cetera, uh, and and you know ultimately this is going to be a a huge boon to the entire industry. In my opinion, I think the, I think the Coinbase uh, listing is going to be a, a a pretty watershed moment for the industry.
0: That's exciting. Yeah. I was kind of hoping that they would just IPO and then throw buy Bitcoin (laughs) or ape into something (laughs) at one inch or something. (laughs) Just go.
1: I mean, they're very, I I don't have any insights on that. They very well might, but they're, they're pretty levered to Bitcoin already as it is. Sure.
0: yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they did pretty good. All right. Well, it was great chatting, Jeff. Uh, I feel like I cut this thing way too short, probably could have gone on for uh, a lot. And I'd be happy to to follow up with you in uh, a little bit more, maybe on a quarterly basis, uh, or when you have another, uh, you know, put out some more uh, blog posts that are start stockpiling. We want to get in, discuss that stuff. And as things change, is there anything you, where should, I should say, where should people find you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Chris. A lot of fun. Love to do it again. Uh, People can find me on Twitter at jdorman81. Uh, They can find us on our website at ar.ca, and they can read our weekly blog, That's Our Two Satoshis. Uh, And obviously, accredited and qualified institutional buyers can reach out to us directly via the website to discuss any of the product offerings that we have.
0: Great stuff, Jeff. It was a good time chatting. Great. Thanks for having me, Chris. All right. Thanks.